Hi, I'm Asher Miller. I'm Jason Bradford. And I'm Rob Dietz. Welcome to Crazy Town, where we enjoy the day because there aren't many left. The topic of today's episode is humanity's detachment from nature. And please stay tuned for an interview with Kathleen Dean Moore. Jason, Asher, I want to tell you guys a little camping story. Is that all right? Fun. Is this like one of those scary ones you tell around the campfire? Oh, a little night? bit, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, let's see how it goes. This took place in Northern California at Castle Crags State Park. You ever been there? Uh, with you. Oh, yeah, that's right. We went there one time together. Well, this is, this <laughs> Good is, not, memory, Rob. This is not that time. This is, uh, yeah, this is another time. Beautiful place, right? Oh, these, of course. These spires rise up a uh, thousand feet and... A uh, really neat place for rock climbers, and the Pacific Crest Trail runs right through there. There's water and forest, and mm. yeah, all this great stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, so one day I, w- I was traveling south trying to get down to the, the Bay Area and decided to stop there and camp, and I was with this friend of mine, and we, we actually got there kind of late, like 8 p.m. It was getting dark, and uh, so we set up our tent, and while we're setting it up, uh, this this doe comes wandering in to camp like aww, like 10 feet aww. from me and uh no mom with it no it's a doe that is a mom oh <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's not a fawn a doe a yeah. doe this you is know how, how well i'm, I'm yeah. tied this into how, nature yeah it's how well versed we are in nature so uh i'm kind of like a dog when this happens i just start chasing it because i can't just sit there and and so you're kind of a dick it. is what you're saying <laughs> i said a dog okay dog so i chase it and it it runs like about 10 feet away and then just stops because it knows I'm absolutely zero threat. And it's just like browsing <laughs> on the grass that's in this draw that, that kind of comes down it to our campsite. It graces on grass. Yes. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so I ignore it, go back, finish setting up the tent. And me and my friend sat out at the picnic table and talked about whatever you, you talk about as, as the light goes away. And, you, and, and whatever, we, we ran out of subjects and went to bed. Okay. okay. So we go down to sleep in this tent. And my friend is like this notoriously deep sleeper. She just doesn't doesn't wake up when you're when you're camping. I'm kind of a light sleeper. Uh, so middle of the night, I can't say exactly what time. I hear the worst scream I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> and I was like, sat bolt upright in bed, like, what the fuck was that? <laughs> right. And uh, I, in my mind, I was like, I think a deer just died. Really? And I've never heard a deer scream, but I, it was like in my mind, if it did, that's yeah. what that's it would sound. sound like. And so I'm like sitting there, my heart is racing, and I, I turn my head so I can listen. I want to hear what's going on out right, there. Right. And I start hearing this dragging noise, and it's coming toward the tent. I hear this like scraping oh, on the ground. like Towards you. What? And so I, I, I had this... Uh, this little camping knife, like maybe a four or five inch blade. I pulled that out and I'm like, okay, we're going to start wrestling here. And I'm like, I, I'm thinking it's a, it's a cougar, a mountain lion is dragging a deer that it just killed towards my tent. And part of me, I wanted to go out and see it because I've always wanted to see one in the wild. But I, you know, I wasn't right. sure that's what it was. And I thought if that is what it is, it's probably stupid to get out and Yeah, it's not going like, to let you pet it or something. Yeah, yeah, like while it's dragging the thing it just killed. So instead, I decided to make a noise to let it know I was there. Right. And so you want, you want to hear the amazing mountain lion scaring noise I made? It was big sobs that you had? <laughs> it, it, it goes like this. It goes, 
That was that, that was the noise. That's the I don't know why that you thought that was going to scare it off. That's that's often a noise that bird, you're like shh, we're in the library. Yeah, well, that's a noise that that bird watchers use, like when they want to sort of get a response or get the birds moving in the tree or get it to vocalize. They'll huh. they'll make this noise. So I tried that on the mountain lion, and the dragging stopped when right. I when I made that noise, and then I heard the growl. The, wow. That clearly was yes. That is a mountain lion. Like it did the wow kind of wow. thing, like and the commercial for <laughs> the Mercury or something like that. <laughs> Our commercial from the eighties. Uh, I'm trying to bring you back to the yeah, 80s. Right, right. Bring it, bring us out of nature. <laughs> That's your into, reference into TV commercials. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, So it made that that growling noise, and so I just sat there uh, for a while, and finally, uh, my friend she sat upright. Finally, and I'm like, "Did you hear that noise?" <laughs> I think a deer just got killed by a mountain lion. Like, blah, blah. I, I heard she, some. <laughs> and she just goes, "Huh," and just like falls back over to sleep. <laughs> Meanwhile, like I, I'm dreaming. like I'm like adrenaline spiked here, and uh, it took me hours to get back to sleep. And what I wanted to tell you, besides the fun of the story, I wanted to tell you about the mindset that occurred after that. Wait, I had this. First of all, was this true? Did, what, oh, yeah, did you yeah. Find out it I, I guess was? I didn't finish. Is yeah. In the morning, I thought, oh, let me go look for some blood or something. And then, like twenty feet away, is this deer carcass? It's got, oh, it was left behind. Oh yeah, it's got puncture. Maybe you did scare I, it off. I'm sure I did. So Jeez. for any of you who experience a mountain lion that's threatening you, <laughs> just make that noise. Oh, you know? that's <laughs> good advice, Rob. Yeah. <laughs> There, there is another story of a woman who had a mountain lion encounter, and she took out her phone and played some Metallica, and that scared it <laughs> away. Oh, that's awesome. That she old. should have done Barry Manilow. Right. They would have run away for good. Right. But uh, it, it it was there. Yeah, it had puncture wounds in its flanks, wow. and its neck was broken. So I think what had happened is a mountain lion ambushed it from behind, grabbed it, bit its neck, and broke it. And you think it's the same doe you saw earlier? I think so, yeah. Oh. Yeah. See, I should have chased it away a little harder. Yeah. Right? If you're rooting for the doe. I mean, if right. you're rooting for the mountain lion, good I mean, deal. Well, the mountain lion got screwed by you because it didn't even get the kill. Well, I was wondering, you know, mountain lions are really secretive. I was wondering if it was just hanging around watching waiting in the morning. Oh, waiting. You know, like, yeah. hey, that guy's messing with my kill. Now I'm going to kill him too. <laughs> right. But yeah, it, it, it put me in this pretty weird mindset for, for quite a while. At first, there was a lot of fear. Like I, I had this vision of mountain lions in my head all the time. I do a lot of solo bike riding and hiking and stuff and just jogging in the in the woods. And uh, and I was often fixated on mountain lions right. while I was doing that. And it was kind of weird. But the part that really interested me is that shifted over time away from fear and more towards awe. Mm-hmm. And I kind of had this feeling like I had this chance at a connection with this mountain lion and with the deer and all and kind of have this this desire to expand on that connection. Like I'd love to figure out some way to follow mountain lion tracks or figure out if you could, you know, So I think you should just go out into the woods, slather yourself (laughs) with deer blood or something like that. And then you'll, you'll get your wish. Right. Right. Maybe put a, put a deer hide over my head and like (laughs) walk around out there. But no, I guess it made me realize there's this big world of connection to nature. You know, I always felt, some kind of kinship with nature, but it's clear that I was missing something Mm. there, Mm -hmm. that I didn't have anywhere near the depth of connection that I thought I had. And and that's kind of what led into what we're talking about today, the hidden driver that's led us into crazy town of the way that humanity is in this race, this rapid acceleration to wall itself off from nature. Mm. 
Yeah, how far we've come in a pretty short time. I mean, if you think about it, for 99.99 whatever percent of our time as a species on this planet, we were not walled off from nature, no. right? We were we were at uh, at the whim of nature. In fact, probably prey for for other species and and so our experience, I think evolutionarily speaking, comes from being deeply embedded in nature. That's like a big part of us. And so it's it's actually a relatively recent phenomenon that some of us, I mean, I, I would say many of our listeners, people that, that are in kind of the world that, that we inhabit are so disconnected from nature, but it hasn't been that way for- no, Not for that long. Yeah, for that long. it's really only the last few thousand years that we've taken to altering the crap out of ecosystems, building these urban places, uh, killing off biodiversity, less and less time outdoors and all that, right? I, I even, I remember this experience. I was in a national park in Switzerland. Mm-hmm. And I remember going to this sort of park kiosk and it was a list of the years that they last saw some major animal. Oh, no. And I was like, oh, my gosh. So there's some parts of the world where killing off the megafauna happened sooner than, than others. And in some places where it was documented better than others. But I even remember, though, you know, a lot of this was in the 1800s and early 20th centuries when yeah. a lot of these last scene was. But I remember also being in graduate school and realizing that I was I was doing a lot of trips into into Latin America for looking at you know, forest ecology and exploration, and realizing that oh, it's really only since the 1950s that there became this rapid switch from most of the landscape was still wilderness to now now there's these patches still remaining of wilderness. Yeah, it switched from a world really still dominated at least territorially by forests that had never been logged to now, oh, there's a, if you have to travel off, uh, out of the city, down this big highway, through, through agricultural hinterlands to find the remaining wild places. <laughs> yeah. And that switch really only happened in the latter half of the 20th century for much of the world. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, um, that's exponential growth for you, right? Mm-hmm. That it would, it would happen so rapidly, so quickly, and so much could be gone so fast. Because there's so many more of us consuming so much more stuff, and we've sort of created this globalized economic system that's that really has become very efficient at, yeah. at harvesting nature. But also, if you think about like the American psyche, in in some ways, European settlers coming here mm-hmm. saw an almost an infinite bounty. Yeah, right? They didn't and notice there wasn't a yeah. sense that that you know, in fact. Nature was scary. And for much of our history, nature has been scary. From know? the perspective of those who are living outside of nature in a sense of almost like a domesticated environment with farms and towns. But like you were pointing out, for most people, if they're hunter-gatherers, right. that was that was it. There was no, yeah, there's nothing else. They're not trying to escape right. from that or be afraid of it. It's more like, uh, I'm going to hunt that deer. Well, I'm gonna- and let's look at the relationships over this sort of deep history, like hunter-gatherers, foragers, you are tied to your landscape. I mean, you may be uh, mobile and sort of migrating across uh, a large swath to follow the food or follow the seasons or you know whatever you need to do to survive, but everything that you do every day 
you are really embedded and in relationship with nature. And then, you know, we come along and figure out how to grow crops, cereal, grains, yeah. and we, we domesticate uh, landscapes for our, you know, to, to be able to get food. And so that's a very different relationship with nature. Yeah. Maybe, Jason, you're the farmer. Uh, yeah. Maybe no, you can I, talk about that. Well, what's interesting is, you know, we're also finding, I remember in these, in these forest studies, and even in this area where we live now, the Lemmet Valley, what, what kind of ecologists have discovered is that at the same time people were embedded in nature and, and embedded in the landscape of forest and meadows, they also modified it with fire, with selecting certain sure. plants. And so there is tropical forests, for example, where they may cut the forest down, do some sort of planting for a while. But then what they do is they, they plant long live trees that in 20 years, they're going to come, they can come back to and harvest the fruit from. Yeah. So fascinating, actually, somewhat modifying the landscape, becoming a little bit of an engineer here in this landscape, but so deeply connected yeah. at the same time. Yeah, you, you, you bring up that point of like engineer, and I think that's where some of the mindset of trying to control nature yeah. comes into play, especially like think about water engineering projects like in, well, in the Nile another, Delta. Well, we stuff. took it to another level, of course, with agriculture, where you simplified the landscape. Instead of creating this, this diverse landscape you're managing um, with fire, it's, it's sort, of, sort of soft management in a sense where processes are happening, you're not controlling it's directly, but you're kind of indirectly with tools. But then with agriculture, you're saying, no, I want this to grow and not everything else. And it needs more water to get better yields. So I'm going to divert a river with canals. Yeah. So we did a huge amount of that. And especially in dry, dry climates, like the Middle East, like the Nile Delta. And in dry climates, when you irrigate, you end up salinating. And so a lot of the civilizations that collapsed early on, the first agricultural civilizations collapsed, because they basically destroyed their soils while they were trying to grow all their food. Yeah, to me, I think what's, it's important to just recognize that there have been these transitions over time, and agriculture has been with us for 10,000 years or whatever, and our relationship to nature changed pretty dramatically. And I would say probably for much of our history, there was an effort to try to control the environment on some level. Mm -hmm in order to survive. And in fact, we've seen the extinction of some megafauna as a result yeah. of human indigenous, you know, we, we sometimes we tend to revere, kind of romanticize a little bit indigenous cultures, but there are, have been situations in the historical record oh, where we've actually rendered some species extinct because of our, our relationship with nature. But I think even in agriculture, and even up until this last century or so, and I'm talking, again, in our context, because yeah. for many people around the world, they still remain in a, in a different context. But in our context, even until fairly recently, we had a sense of seasons. Yeah. Time was really connected with, with the, the cycle of the daily cycle of the sun. You know, it was like not until railroads that we actually had uniform time right. that people followed. And now we've created these artificial environments with electricity and lights and We've taken it to a level now that is so disconnected from oh, nature. Yeah, I mean, just think about how you live day to day inside of four walls. Think about modern infrastructure. You know, you talk about water engineering projects, Jason, with a canal. Well, think about a giant hydroelectric dam, and, right. you know, something right. like that. Think about how we're embracing 
the information age and technology and how if you want, you can kind of live your life ready player one style, you know, where you're yeah. you're in your virtual reality bus or whatever it is and and in a suit. And Even just, while farming, you can probably be in these new tractors and they've got like a, right. a virtual reality sort of scheme that's, going on, auto driving for you. Can, can we uh, have a fundraiser a share so that we can get Jason a virtual reality farming gig? Probably sure. about a million Those, bucks you could set me up. Yeah, that's not that's not too much. <laughs> well, I was thinking, I, I like what you said, share about how it's transitions and they're really important to think about. I was thinking about what what what's some kind of example that would that would look at these transitions in in our relationship with nature and I, I, I for whatever reason I came up with the idea of chicken. That's a great example. Chicken, <laughs> chicken. I, I'm following you in my head. Okay, right now. well, what do, what do you have to see? Say what you chicken? think? So, okay. in forager times, hunter gatherer, you'd be out on the prairie and you would hunt a prairie chicken, and you would have to you know whatever figure out how to do that, what to use, how to stalk it, and then how to prep it, and you, and you okay, eat Okay, well, it. the chicken we eat commercially now actually comes from, like, Indonesia, South India. But yeah, anyway. like a, a guinea fowl yeah, or something. But yeah, yeah. some kind of, I get it. Some kind of chicken-like bird, bird, yeah. yes, wild bird. That, that you hunt. And yeah. think of the things you have to know about your habitat and its habitat and, and all that. So compare that, you go through the transition to farming, where maybe you've got a, a, a flock of chickens— and you're going to have one for dinner. You know, you got to raise that chicken, so you still have to know something yeah. about it. But and you know what it free, is. They're, they're somewhat free range a little bit. Yeah. They got a yard. You know, they're kind of having chicken habitats that they can. Yeah, enjoy. but like you know, but you, you can, control that that habitat. Yeah, you control yeah. it. And think thing. about how much more of a intimate relationship the hunter gatherer has to to his or her habitat than the farmer might have to this this chicken habitat. Now, now think about you're in your Humvee. Oh, I, I know my chicken environment really well, right? It's it's KFC. Right. right? Well, that's what yeah. I'm you're in your Humvee, you're driving through the drive-through, yeah. and you order a bucket of a bucket of chicken-like substance. <laughs> <laughs> How much connection with nature yeah. do you have at that and point? And that was not ra- that was raised indoors. Like your chicken has been in a full urban environment. <laughs> your chicken is not even a natural no, substance. Your chicken hasn't even been outside. <laughs> the the acceleration of the walling off from nature of chickens. Right. It's a beakless, footless Oh, uh, yeah, and, and you can even go like to McDonald's and get your chicken nuggets where they come with a plastic hamburger that later gets stuck in some porpoise's blowhole because it <laughs> and, and by the way, that the chicken ocean. nugget is made from the parts of like 6,000 different chickens, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. Okay, so, that's depressing. It, it is a little depressing, but you can see the levels of relationship with nature dwindling. Like we're getting yeah. more and more disconnected. And it's almost like, Humanity seems to be in a race to do this and do it faster and faster. And I think I'm going to sound like an old man now, but <laughs> it does feel like it's gotten faster and faster. And it's so sad for me to think that there are, this is where I sound like an old man. Not only does it seem <laughs> like younger generations are more disconnected from nature than maybe we were as kids. And of course, the circumstances that we grow up in determine our access to nature, right? So I think all of us in our childhoods had some access to, if we're living in suburbia, some access to nature, you know, when we were younger. So we could go out. I remember when I moved to the United States, I was living in a in a town in, in Massachusetts, and there was an acre of land behind my house. Yeah, huge. There were trees there. Yeah. We would sled through those trees, and we would bike through there, and we would go fishing sometimes, you know, and... My kids, part of the reason we chose to move to Oregon was 
to live in a place where we're fortunate enough to be able to do this, where our kids can actually be outside. My youngest son is walking on a path through when school was actually allowing <laughs> kids to go there, walking on a path through the trees to get to school. But so many kids these days don't have really that relationship with nature. And there are millions, hundreds of millions of people who live in urban environments now that not only have no interaction with nature at all, except maybe a tree at a park, they don't even see the stars at night. Jeez. You know? What what are stars? Exactly. They're like our sun, but far away. Oh, okay. Thank you. I had the same kind of situation where I grew up in suburbia, and I would find these places. And I, I look back now, and they were kind of pathetic, degraded habitats. <laughs> like, a, like a stormwater ditch or something? <laughs> well, I had a little BMX bike, and we would like take our – we would find these places where you could get through some fence. You went to the landfill. You could get through some fence, and then you could drive – because this is in California, so the creeks were all would all dry out. Yeah. So you could ride your bike down one side and up the other. We made wow. tracks all the time. So you had, a, you had a half pipe for your bike. Yeah, we had half pipes. But, there, of course, there was like – there's shrubs and trees, and you just sort of enjoy it. And yeah, it, it was full of trash. You know, it was like washing machines and that. It was it was just disgusting. That sounds great, man. You're really selling this. But but no, but it was interesting. It was like I really like appreciated just even having that little bit yeah. of an escape yeah. and having the shade and and well, this kind of wildness. In I'm the I'm the same. I mean, we used to go for picnic lunches in the summer when we were little kids and find a creek and was catch that fish Stone and, Mountain, so you could sit and <laughs> sit bask on, in the glory of the Confederate assholes. No, no. Well, I mean, I did grow up in Stone Mountain, Georgia, and around there, but uh, but we found some creeks with with fish and with snakes, and you know, we would. We would uh, wander around and follow the creek upstream yeah. as far as we could and stuff like that. But so, I mean, I have a nostalgia for that. And same as what you said, Asher, and I think, Jason, you saying we like we wanted to live in a place like this because of the experiences yeah. we had as children. And something that, that came to mind similar from my reading, you know me, I can't handle adult level Material, no. it's no, no. it's too no Faulkner for too you. too difficult language. Yeah, words. it's yeah. Uh, and too much time commitment. So I like reading kids' books. Sure, um, sure. just the ones with pictures, or well, no, words. I had this kick for a while of going through the ones that won Newbery Awards. Oh, you know, yeah, that's so great, great, oh great God. books. But I realized there was this weird little blip in the late fifties, early sixties of hmm. books that had this huge nostalgia for nature. A book, My Side of the Mountain, by Gene Craighead George, and Island of the Blue Dolphins by Scott O'Dell and uh, Where the Red Fern Grows by mm. Wilson Rawls. You guys read any I read, of those? I read Where the Red Fern. I kind of cried. Yeah. They're good books. And yeah. they're they're all centered around like a 10, 11, 12, 13-year-old's nature experience. Uh, where the Red, Red Fern Grows has a lot to do with dogs as well. Yeah. <laughs> You're going to be okay, don't, Jason. Don't start crying, man. <laughs> but... There's some kind of nostalgia thing going on at that point, too, for I think the the way that kids weren't in nature nearly the way that they used to be. Yeah. Well, what's it like now? They don't even know uh, what to be nostalgic for. Oh, well, I mean, there's this whole notion, like I was talking about earlier about how 1950, say, Latin America versus <laughs> 2020 is totally different in, in terms of how much forest is left. Mm-hmm. It's gone from 90% forest to 10% forest, let's say. I think that's that's what's also happening from generation to generation. There's a there's a there's less nature available. So what like what you could like what we had these drags in our backyards. 
And and that was hey, in the- Hey, you had the dregs, all right? I had an actual creek with water in it. Well, I had water in the winter, but this is California. I'm sorry. You couldn't ride your bike up and down like That's true. You, you had a far better BMX experience than I did. <laughs> but there's this um, this notion from a guy, Daniel Pauly, about the shifting baseline, the mm-hmm. idea that what we consider to be you know normal and abundant, let's say, is what we experience as a child. And then, right. and then as an adult, we're like, oh man, it's gone downhill from here. But if you ask someone from 100 years ago what their baseline was. Yeah, yeah. they would think we were paupers Yeah, it was like, oh, you can step across the creek uh, just walking on giant salmon backs. Right, you know? yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. you know, now it's like, oh, I see a minnow. <gasps> well, it's really interesting, that idea. I, I remember reading about the shifting baseline, and I think Daniel Pauly was a fish biologist, and basically he was lamenting the way that the oceans are being fished out. And you bring it up sort of like with a broader perspective on nature. I was thinking about it from the, uh, the shifting baseline of technology. Mm. And in researching this topic, uh, there's a, a pretty well-known book by a guy named Richard Louvre. He wrote the book Last Child in the Woods. The subtitle is Saving Our Children from Nature Deficit Disorder. Mm-hmm. And he was writing in there kind of about this, this technological issue. And uh, I want to I share a quote with you guys from it. He says, Americans around my age, baby boomers or older, enjoyed a kind of free natural play that seems in the era of kid pagers Instant messaging and Nintendo, like a quaint artifact. <laughs> Nintendo? So, kid pagers? Yeah. Talk about quaint. Yeah. Yeah. So he, he wrote this in like probably early 2000s, yeah. right? I got virtual reality uh, games now, buddy boy. <laughs> I know. You think about like social media, like every kid's got a, f- a smartphone that's more powerful than yeah. anything uh, you know, that, that anybody kids had. Kids pagers. Yeah. <laughs> beep, 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 beep. So like think about that shifting base. Not only do we have the nature shifting baseline, we have the technology yes. shifting baseline oh, where crazy. kids are more and more embedded in this, uh, I don't know what you call it, technosphere. Well, yeah. and th- yeah, I mean, think about that's where, again, bringing it back to exponential growth, the Moore's law, right, around the processing speed of chips, you know, doubling every 18 months or whatever it is. Like, we've seen this acceleration in that kind of technology. And it is dramatic. Yeah. You know, it's, it really is dramatic within the lifetime of our kids, let alone our lifetimes. And it does feel like it's accelerating. And it is eroding, in a sense, connection to, to nature, amongst other things, connection to humans even. Right. Yeah. Well, if, if we're stuck in technology and we're walling ourselves off from nature and that's accelerating, I think we're even seeing it in the way we protect maybe our, our, our most pristine natural areas. You guys already know this about me. I'm a national parks geek. Maybe even yeah, totally. maybe even more so than an badge, 80s. Right? You have a national parks geek badge? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's uh, well, it's actually a tattoo. So. Oh wow! But you have this Hardcore. art in your house of like all the national park art. Yeah, right? yeah. I mean, I, I, I just, I don't know. I think we went to the Grand Canyon when I was 12, and it blew me away as well. It should. Did you do it like like in vacation? In the film, do you remember that? I mean, yes. you're in the 80s. We, so you guys spent all this time driving there, and then you just stood there for 30 seconds, took a photo, and got out? It's not that far from that. I was the only <laughs> really? one in my family that wanted to go down in there uh-huh. and see the river. and so, But, uh, you know, more time in the gift shop than, uh, oh, than in the canyon. <laughs> sad, sad. But no, the, the national parks, I you know, 
Ken Burns did a documentary on how it's America's best idea. And mm-hmm. I, I, I agree. It's an amazing idea to set aside land and say, we're not going to mow this down. We're not going to take uh, timber out of it. We're not going to mess with it. At the same time, you think about what we're doing. We wall off these places and, and say, that's the nature over there. Go right. there and see that. And I, I even was looking at our newest national parks. There's been quite a few that have been added since 2000. Uh, the Cuyahoga Valley, Congaree in, in, in uh, South Carolina. There's three of them that are interesting to me. The Great Sand Dunes in Colorado, the Indiana Dunes in Indiana, and White Sands in New Mexico. They're, they're all sand. <laughs> <laughs> that's what we're left that's what's yeah. preserving. Right, right. Yeah. Well, that, that's a, I used to work with a guy named Mike Scott at the U.S. Geological Survey who studied kind of broad-scale conservation. And his, his big conclusion was, we are great at conserving rocks and ice. But this is good. Now we can add sand. Yeah, okay. Well, we're, we're progressing. You know, this is actually probably pretty smart to do that because otherwise all the frackers are going to grab the sand and use it for fracking right. operations. Right, so or we, make we some more drywall it. out of it or whatever. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, but you think about like we, we have to set up these boundaries, which is where nature resides, and then we can get in our campers and But yeah, and, but that's, that, that's the thing is even when we go and visit them, right, it's sort of technologized. Our experience with, with nature is done through RV park camping or even in our cars, we go off to places, we get out of the car, maybe we look around a little bit, you know, or people take out snowmobiles or <laughs> they're they're hiking, you know. On- Jason almost just vomited when you <laughs> right. mentioned snowmobiles. Or some dune these, buggies are better. Some yeah, of dune buggies. Paths, yeah, let's, let's ruin those sandy sand. parks. <laughs> <laughs> some of these paths are paved to make it easier for people to, yeah. to walk on. And there's, you know, there's an ADA thing there, which sure. I, I respect. And, and I think it's it's... Really important. It's to only provide. for Americans with disabilities. That's the American <laughs> right. disability. If if you're a foreigner with a disability, to, yeah. then you're not allowed. Exactly. So even that experience is not. You know, again, I'm going to sound like a you know a crotchety old guy. What? But is that what? really experiencing nature? And I'm guilty of this too. Going on hikes sometimes. I'm you know I might stick my earbuds in and listen to a podcast. You ever you ever you know? I, I stayed when I was a kid. My grandparents took me to Yosemite a couple times. Like. Yeah. Like, I don't know, I was five when I was six, and we stayed in the Iwani. Mm. Oh, my God, that was incredible. What, is that a lodge there? The what Iwani is, is the is this luxury lodge. It was built in the lodge, you know, lodge architecture. It was built in that era uh, of, the, of the early 20th century. Yeah, amazing. It was freaking incredible. This yeah. dining hall and stuff. We're in, the, we're in the Yosemite National Park. and But then I remember going later, and, and, and uh, like in junior high, and I had to eat like at the Marriott uh, – <laughs> Kind of like cafeteria. It was horrific. Yeah. I, I just came up with a business idea based yeah. on what you said to share with uh, listening to your, putting in your earbuds. So with this shifting baseline stuff, as the, as the animals are all disappearing, what you'll do is you'll go to a place like Yosemite, you'll put in the earbuds, and it'll play animal noises and tell you what <laughs> used to be there. Right. <laughs> it'll be great. Like, like going no, to no, a no. museum. Today. You're, like the, like you're thinking way too simply here. We need the VR. VR. Yes. Oh, right. So you're walking on this path. In fact, you don't even need to walk. It will just escort you like on an escalator. Yeah. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then you could see all the animals that should be there. Like right. a cougar right. trying to attack you. Right. right. And in fact... You can go and experience all the national parks by going to some place in your little town at some strip mall where you just go inside with a VR goggles on your face. Yeah. Uh, oh. Okay. Well, that's fun. 
Well, I, I want to get serious again if we can. Yeah. Okay. I'm okay. I'm willing to go there because if, if you got something good. Well, here's the thing: is you've brought some things up for me, and I've been thinking about how I grew up and what that told me about nature and my relationship. And it was kind of like almost thin. Like I had to, I had to sort of find it myself in a sense. Like I didn't grow up in a culture that revered it or was telling me much about it. You know, I go in my backyard and I I I take care of the doughboy pool and. Uh, what, what is that? What the hell is a doughboy pool? It's an above ground pool. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. So okay. It's a cheap ass pool. Why is it called that? I don't. It's a brand. Okay, okay. It's not like Pillsbury. Oh, I, thought, I, thought, <laughs> I thought it was like the shape you get in by swimming in it or something. Right. right. Um, so, so what's interesting though is even though that that was my upbringing, I had enough experience. Like my grandparents take me to Yosemite, and my uncle lived up in, in Lake around Lake Tahoe, and I would go on hikes with him and camping. You know, I, my first camping experience when I was ten or eleven, so I kind of knew I was really into this stuff, and even just seeing like tadpoles in the creek. So I majored in biology, and as I, I had this ability as a as an undergrad to go to Costa Rica, and for a whole whole quarter, you know, like my all my classes were in Costa Rica. I was living there with other students, and we were we were living in this lodge, you know, this new kind of, you know, it wasn't very fancy, but it was this lodge right at the edge of this forest. And I would walk into the forest every day, just like outside, get breakfast, and go do stuff related to classes. And I had this class where they taught us basic botany and taxonomy. So that was the ability to recognize plants and by their characteristics, give them names. It, it took me a while. At first I was like, ah, this is hard. But as soon as like it got gelled, I remember this moment like about four weeks in where this gelled and I started successfully figuring out what one plant was versus another. And suddenly this forest, which is hyper diverse, right? There's mm-hmm. thousands of plant species. Suddenly I saw patterns. Instead of essentially just seeing this wall of green stuff, I suddenly saw uniqueness everywhere. And it was able to distinguish and then see relationships. And it was, that, it was that vocabulary combined with being told, look for this, look for that. Look for yeah. the shape of the leaf. Look for how the leaf is joining the stem. Look for how, how the uh, stem is attached. Look for these little things called stipules. Pay attention to its growth habit. All this stuff that I never even paid attention to, but I was taught. It was almost like I had not been taught that as a kid. It wasn't a culture, but I was, I was now learning this culture of sort of science and, and ecology. And I was studying it from that perspective as like a, as like a 19-year-old. Yeah. It's almost or like 20, a- 22, uh, 21-year-old maybe. I can't remember. It's almost like the, a, a bit of a tearing down of the walls that you, yes. you've been living behind. Yeah. So it can happen. And what, what though, when, you get, when I got that a vocabulary and that kind of observational skills, suddenly like my connection to it just accelerated. That, that's really interesting because I, I want to explore that idea of the vocabulary and language for a sec because I, I was listening to a podcast, again, in prep for this idea about nature and, and how we're being disconnected from it. The podcast is called Rewild Yourself, hmm. and it ran, I think, from 2014 to 2017, and in, in this episode, this guy who, who did the podcast, Daniel Vitalis, is interviewing another guy named Arthur Haynes, who he wanted to learn a, an indigenous language. Wow. Because he thought that, uh, well, English 
is the language of the colonizer. Hmm. And you would have it would have a you would have a very different perspective if that's the language you know versus an indigenous language. And he and in that episode he was talking about all these interesting ways in which it, it manifests. So one of them was like, okay, in, in English you talk about rain, right? And it's a noun. Uh, it's it's the rain out there. Well in in the language he was studying, Passamaquoddy, the idea of rain is all verbs. It's all action. And there's like 50 wow. different verbs that hmm. talk about what sort of raining action is happening. And so you, you, you think about if it's all about nouns and the rain is a thing, it's almost like, oh, well, of course we can commoditize that. Hmm. Whereas it's an action, it's something I'm in relation with, totally different way of seeing the world. So uh, maybe you were... And decolonizing yourself a little bit there, Jason. That's, well, that's an interesting perspective. I definitely... Although the language that you were learning was probably... Latin, right? Latin. Yeah, yeah. Well, also it, a colonizer language. <laughs> no, they were nouns. They were these, they were these yeah. now, they were now these plants that had names and recognizable features. But there's a difference between seeing it as just all this green stuff to seeing it as, oh... That's this family of plants, right. and this individual is in the same family as this one over here. I can see how they're related to each other, and these tend to have flowers that are visited by butterflies, and isn't that cool? Well, that's the piece, right? Because you're studying what happens ecologically. Yeah. How does everything interact? How does energy flow through the system? But you're seeing the patterns and relationships. La- yes. Language is, is a key means for us to create memory, Yes. right? And to retain information, store information in our brain. So it, it'd be hard to imagine doing it without language. Right. I realize how important language was. But one of the things that, that Louvre pointed out in his book, Last Child in the Woods, is that Language, yes, you're right, is, a, is how we interpret the world and tell each other things about it. But because of our disconnect, we've got the problem of like this atrophying of our other senses because we're, we're so walled off. Like Think about how many stimuli there are in an outdoor setting yeah. versus in, a say, a library. I mean, there's a lot of books to read, but you know, inside the walls right. of some interior room. Yeah, a lot fewer stimuli, and certainly less for your nose and your eyes and your sense of I taste. I think that's important. Understand because we 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 recreate visual stimuli very well, but the others we don't. Right. Uh, just get back to the language thing. I I find really fascinating about verbs versus nouns. The other thing about verbs, I think, is when you think about rain in verb form, it's it's a recognition that it's constantly changing. As well, there's yeah. motion, there's dynamism involved in it, whereas a noun could be very um, stagnant in a sense. And and part of our, I think, our disconnection from nature and what we've done in terms of our relationship with nature and trying to control it is to take away all the variability yeah. of it, and that comes at a huge cost. Which is something I actually want to get at because we we're talking about sort of nostalgia, our nostalgia for for kind of our childhoods right. when we had interaction with nature and that's sort of being lost. But I think it's a lot deeper than that, right? I mean, what are the kind of emotional, mental, kind of psychological, the f- even physical tolls of being disconnected yeah. from nature? Well, there's a ton of them. I, first off, I have to point, off, point out that in myself, I've got this goddamn colonized brain that like you're talking about verbs and nouns. I go to Schoolhouse Rock, the cartoons that played Saturday mornings in the 80s during uh, when all the animated shows were on TV, 
And I'm singing in my head, verbs, that's what's happening. <laughs> a noun's a person, place, or thing. You know, it's, it's so thing. stupid. <laughs> so stupid. I, re- <laughs> I remember reading this book, Gaviotis. You guys ever read that book? It's mm-hmm. about this place in, the, in, in Colombia that's kind of in the lowlands, and they build this almost utopia. Yeah, yeah, that's by Alan, Alan Wiseman, yeah. right? Well, they had this thing where they built a hospital, and the hospital had a retractable roof. And whenever the conditions they were right, they retracted the roof. Oh, interesting. And so it let the patients, they're lying in this bed, see the sky, feel the air, smell everything that was the outside. And so apparently you heal faster. Yeah. <laughs> and, but, and at night, they could see the stars. They would open up and they just like stargaze. I think Richard Louvre, I know we keep, we keep referencing his writings, but I think he talked about how there's evidence with studies that, yes. you know, being able to, like, what's out your window at a hospital what you're, what you're even just looking at, yes. not even being in, but right. looking at, makes a difference in terms of people's recovery. I mean, you have all kinds of these really, really interesting studies. Uh, I have a favorite two stats uh, from that. One is they, they looked at Michigan inmates whose cells faced a prison courtyard, and those people had 24% more physical illnesses than those whose cells had a view of farmland. Is that hold true in Illinois? Uh, no, it's only in Michigan. Okay. okay. All right. <laughs> There's just something about Michigan <laughs> yeah. people. The, the other one is that people who watch images of a natural landscape after a stressful experience, those folks calm down markedly in five minutes as measured by muscle tension, pulse, skin conductance, as compared to someone who didn't see a, a picture of something and natural. And that's just... That's just a picture. That's yeah, just a that's, picture. That's, that's not even being in it. So this yeah. is. I'm gonna do. I'm gonna. I'm, I'm gonna walk around with like some awesome calendar of the national parks <laughs> just and pull it up. Hold it up every time I feel. Hold it in your back pocket, like you know. Yeah. <laughs> pull it. Up, unfold it. Right. Maybe this should be an experiment with the uh, proverbial Karens out there who get mad and ask to speak to the manager at a store. You know that all the employees should just be trained to like grab a nice, beautiful picture of nature. <laughs> right. Hold it up in front of their face, you know, right. come down. Oh, it's, that's huge. But the, yeah, there's all kinds of health effects where you have uh, negative effects if you are away from nature and, you know, positive effects if you're in it. The, you know, obesity is, a, is an epidemic problem now, attention deficit problems. We've got more prescription of psychotropic drugs do, to people, do we especially need children. This evidence? I mean, it, it's just logical to say we as a species evolved, we became a species intimately connected to nature. And in a relatively short period of time, we've done all of these things to wall off nature, and now we're disconnected from it. Wouldn't you think that there would be some consequences, some impact of that? Don't try to get all rational on us here. I mean, this is crazy town. It's just basic. I mean, I think it's just as simple as that. Of course, this is a problem for us, right? But but I think we need to talk about, you know, here we are, this, this podcast is crazy town. We're talking about these huge forces that are driving us over the edge of the cliff, you know, mm-hmm. in terms of like a real existential threat to humanity and, and other species on this planet. So I think it's it's worth really talking about, well, how does this sort of relationship with nature or the lack thereof pertain to that, mm. you know? And and for me, I think, that, I think there's a few things there. One is probably that we would argue that 
getting reconnected to nature and understanding nature's flows, being in relationship with nature is not just psychologically, emotionally, physically better for us, but because of the 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 physical limits of the of the planet to support the way we function, we have to change that, right? We have to simplify, reduce, get back into living within ecological bounds. Mm-hmm. That means we have to be connected to nature yeah. in order to understand how to do that, right? Yeah. So that that's like a to me sort of a given. But the other thing is that nature's remarkable and nature provides incredible probably the only areas of solution, quote-unquote solution, that I would have any hope in in terms right. of how to deal with sequestering carbon and these other kinds of things. But if we don't value nature, we don't really, really value it, we are going to continue to be on this course where we basically will, you know, we're maybe in the wily Coyote moment right now, but we'll realize we're, we're off the edge of the cliff. It reminds me a little bit of like these forest bathing studies, what you're talking about, because mm. they, you can turn them either way. Right. And, and I think, I think there's probably though, there's a way to use this. that's both potentially like commercial <laughs> and then it going towards more like, you know, just double down on some sort of technological substitute. Or there's a way to look at this that says, no, we really have to turn towards using nature and valuing it and connecting with it. So you guys familiar with these a little bit? Forest bathing? Forest bathing. So maybe we're talking about like... Is that going in the woods? Yeah. Uh, Yeah, I guess I can't it just be called going into the woods? I think forest bathing, I, I, of course, imagine somebody like in some kind of like mount, there's a waterfall and they're bathing, you know, in this little pool... Well, it's. I think it's kind of interesting. It's it's it, it's a Japanese phrase, so maybe the hmm. translations. But so these these Japanese researchers figured out that when people walk into the forest, it lowers a lot of the stress responses. You know, cortisol levels and blood pressure and heart and breathing rate, whatever. But of course, it's science, so they got to figure out well, why. Why? Well, they narrowed it down to exposure to a terpene in the air. Is that, that a is that like a pterodactyl? Yes, it's a, <laughs> it's a tiny pterodactyl. <laughs> You thought pterodactyl, I thought turpentine. Right. Well, terpenes are phytochemicals. Cher, put down the turpentine. Stop, <laughs> stop huffing it. <laughs> terpenes is a large, large class of phytochemicals. So phyto means plant, chemical plant. They're made by mm. plants. And when you, if you walk through a forest and you smell, you're usually smelling terpenes. So you ever go smell like some of the trees out, uh, like the ponderosa pines or Jeffrey, they, they smell like vanilla. Yeah. That's I a terpene. W- I was thinking yeah. butterscotch. Butterscotch. But yeah. It's a terpene. Like uh, linalool is the terpene in lavender. So, so, like those cheap Halloween candies you get, that's just as good as uh, as breathing in the forest. <laughs> well, this is the thing that's interesting is like they are able to recreate the results of these people walking in the forest by putting in a motel room and injecting pinene oh, scent God. into the room. Oh. So there's something to be said for artificially getting these chemicals, right? Like mm. that's why you take like Epsom salt baths that have stuff that calm your chamomile tea. You're in your little cubby of a home, but you're bringing these chemicals in. And but it, it, it's all right. Wait, wait. I take it back, Cher. Start huffing the turpentine. <laughs> I'm not sure that that's the kind of chemical you're referring to, Jason. <laughs> but it gets to me. What's interesting is it gets at the at the biochemistry and uh and that we evolved mm-hmm. in a relationship with the environment where our body isn't healthy. Isn't right, because we cut off from yeah, those things. Our body actually needs interaction with all these phytochemicals to actually maintain yeah. levels of stress, levels of 
relaxation, levels of, of, of mental clarity. How interesting would it be if here I was just thinking about like food diet, right? Yeah. And, and all the education people do around, you need this much protein, carbohydrates, blah, right. blah, 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 blah. If, imagine if like your diet included that, right? you know, exposure to these kinds of, of chemicals in nature. Well, you know, we, you, you, know you, you could almost like, like you, people will package diet programs up like the Weight Watchers right. and ship you 12 weeks. Yeah, you could be shipped like, here's, here's 12 weeks Please. of the right chemicals you need to inhale. Now it's my turn to start crying, okay? <laughs> but Let's I'm, not do we, that. Can we not do that? <laughs> well, that's what I'm saying. I would rather not go that route. I would rather us say, you know, what's a lot cheaper and easier and non-commodified way to do this? is to just take some walks in a place that has trees. And well, <laughs> it has. I mean, I think that idea of it's healthy, uh, as you were kind of alluding to a share, it's, it's pretty commonsensical to say, like, of course, being in the, in the habitat in which we evolved is good for us. Breathing air that's, uh, that's clean but has the, the chemicals that we evolved under is, is good for you. I totally get that. The one of the big takeaways for me in, in looking into this is like if you don't have some kind of meaningful, depthful relationship with nature, you don't love it, how could you possibly care for it? And why why would you not exploit it and undermine it? And of course, when you undermine the habitat that you live in, you're uh, at least at, at some point in the future, if not immediately, price, yeah. you're undermining yourself. It, I gotta say, guys, it makes me really sad to think about. We we're talking about our nostalgia, sort of the overall disconnection that the humanity has been undergoing. But think about not only younger generations who are experiencing less, you know, than than their than previous generations. But all of those kids, all of those people that live in these urban environments, you're talking about the smell. Yeah, we yeah. know what you meant when yeah. you, you were talking about Diesel these smells. Diesel doesn't cut it, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> but there's an inequality aspect of this that is really heartbreaking to me because there are, there are kids, there are people, disproportionately people that are poorer, that are people of color who have never been afforded the opportunity to have that connection. Don't know what those smells even are. Right. And in fact, they're being exposed to the exact worst chemicals that they could be exposed to. We're they're on the front lines of all the shit that we're producing right. in these urban environments. You know, it's so I, so when we're thinking about reconnecting to nature, is can we start with the front of the line of people who never had any connection well, to nature? I want to whiplash you for a second and try to shift you from from sadness to anger. Oh, that's be easy. Because <laughs> easy because when you think about people without connection to nature and how they can get an exploitative mindset and how that's what's led us into this overshoot situation, or one of the hidden drivers that's led us into the overshoot situation that humanity faces, uh, I recently came across uh, just a, an awesome example that I'm sure the two of you are really going to enjoy. Okay. So Harvard-educated Matthew Iglesias. He's one of the co-founders of Vox.com. So he's not one of these uh, people, at least any, you know, I don't know his history, but I, I assume he's got some money and some resources. What he wrote recently uh, was a book that I think 
is born out of his lack of connection to nature. He wrote a book called One Billion Americans. Oh, right. We talked about this The Case before. for Thinking Bigger. God damn it. <laughs> so, so this guy, uh, if you go into his book, there's a great <sighs> little passage in there where he writes- You did this? Yeah. He, he, oh, I, didn't, I didn't get the book. I, I was able to get a little sample online. Okay, he says, he writes, I am not personally a nature lover or an outdoorsy person, but for those who are, it's worth emphasizing that an expanded population need not come at the expense of wilderness or outdoor recreations. He goes on, he talks about how a higher population might mean higher CO2 emissions, but that's okay. There's more of us and we'll engineer a way out Fuck of that you. problem. Oh, God. Fuck it's the whole idea. You. It's like a Julian Simon sort of like oh, Simon-esque, like more, the ultimate resource is the human mind. Yeah, but Just it's saying with a straight face, oh, we can have a billion people in the United States and there will be no impact on nature. Yeah, well, and, and it it's just telling that you know he's a he's four wall clearly urbanite. disconnected from nature. Yeah, this right. guy. And I I don't mean to like rail on the guy. He's probably a an okay person. But. Uh, no, you can rail on him <laughs> yeah, because I, you know what he spent time writing a book, and you'd think that he's done a little bit of thinking and research in writing that book, and and to come to a conclusion that it, it's not even being ignorant of it. It's saying I've looked at this and I yeah. think there's no problem. Yeah. Right. And you know what. Fuck you, you're wrong. Right. All right, well, time to double down on the anger, because I got another guy in another book for you. I, I read a book called Naked Economics, uh, and the author was this guy, Charles Whelan, and uh, he's he's a lover of uh, neoliberal capitalism. <laughs> Great. <laughs> and, uh, what? This guy, are you just a glutton for punishment, I, What Rob? are you doing? You got to know all sides of the story, okay? Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. So uh, he... He wrote this little vignette in the book about, it was kind of the intro of the, the idea of the book is like, imagine you're in a cafe in Paris and you eat a tuna sandwich and <laughs> it's really wonderful. Mm. And, okay. and he talks about, think about if you had to orchestrate how that sandwich got to your plate. Like you would have to be in the ocean and do the fishing and then you'd have to cut it up and you'd have to blow all this stuff. All so right. this tuna the from bread. the South It's Pacific, easier than making a toaster. Right, right. It is. But- but he, he basically goes through, it's, it's like the magic of the market, right? right? I, I've heard this before. And, uh, you know, to some degree, I get it. That's fine. But you don't have to do any research at all, really, to then go look at his Pacific tuna and realize this is a species that's been fished out. I mean, yeah. they're, they're now rare. They had to close down the fishery. So again, if you have no connection, no reverence with nature, it's easy to commodify it. You know, not only that... But you don't give a shit about other people, too, because that tuna is not going to be there for future generations. And how many people get to go to Paris and eat a fucking tuna fish sandwich? (laughs) Do you know what I mean? It's like... I I, I hate this whole... So there there is a difference in economic thought between... The dominant is that we should price everything and just accept the market. This is the dominant thought. If we put prices on nature... And, and they're good prices. We fig- we know enough to figure out how to put the right price on that the market will then adjust. Yosemite, a dollar ninety nine. Yellowstone, two ninety nine. Buy two, get a third free, especially if it's made of sand. <laughs> so this 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 mindset of this last guy, the tuna fella, pisses me off fella. because you know. The market's the market's just going to gobble up everything, right? But the idea with some people say, okay, if we commodify it, if we put a price on it, and the price is high enough, it will discourage consumption. 
So the, the, the way to discourage consumption in their mind is put a price on stuff that I consider sacred. It's like, no, 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 no. You cannot eat my child. My <laughs> child has a high price on it. Right? Exactly. <laughs> okay, I know it's a tender, a tender human. Okay, the ribs are spectacular. Come on, there's a, there's a price. Like, what is it, like 1200 bucks, right. 13 Come on, you'd sell. Depends on but, the day. But this is the thing. It's right. like, we, you can really easily go to examples. You're like, oh, no, 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 that is taboo. Oh, we would I, never put a price on that. Your child didn't do the dishes. The price just drops. Yeah, right. exactly. yeah. 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 <laughs> we can no, do a spot market. Spot market. So I just kind of, this is, I think, though, the fact that we're talking about language and the culture we're raising where everything is for sale. Everything's commodified. But to me, it's not the, it's not the tuna fish guy. It's, it's people who are actually kind of part of our collective tribe who are wanting to actually address these Well, even these Nordhaus, issues. for yeah, example. even ecological economists. But it's not even just it. Nordhaus who we picked right. on a lot, right? Yeah. I mean, I think that there are other people that, that are not economists. No. They're environmentalists. Yes. And they they, fall they see this rapacious, capitalist, exploitative, extractive system gobbling up nature. And they know that we they want to protect nature. They love nature. They love species in nature and biodiversity. And they see the, the role that nature plays in addressing the climate crisis. Like all their motivations, their, their reasoning is coming from the right place. And they're they're desperate to figure out a way of solving this problem, knowing that they're coming up against a machine. Yeah. Right? That is this you know, it doesn't even have a, a head on it. It's got you know <laughs> right. it's got billions of heads on it. And and so you understand the rationale of saying, Well, God, if we just put a price on carbon, we can actually get the market to like respect nature. But I think what you're pointing out here is in doing that. We continue to to think that nature is there for us to control, and as long as we have that mindset, we will never ever truly figure out how to live sustainably on this planet. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, I think we have to think of it more of like sacredness and tab- taboos. That there is no price on this. <laughs> yeah, it's like like your like your your baby. Are you going to sell your baby? No, you wouldn't. Yeah. You have to think about that for nature, like. Like there, there are things we should just never do because if we if we do them, they're so morally reprehensible. But the problem is, it's almost like the problem is our culture is so broken that it doesn't understand what is what is morally reprehensible, right? It doesn't understand that. It it thinks, it just imagines that you can solve the most glaring, obscene terrifying problem we've ever faced, which is the complete collapse of our civilization and destruction of the biosphere, setting back, you know, ev- evolutionary progress or you know, whatever I'm called, pro- ev- evolutionary history, millions of years of loss of species diversity and ecosystem destruction. We think we can solve that by just like tweaking the price of the stuff that we're like funneling through the industrial maw. I, it's just bogus. I think, and you know, I guess we'll get to this when we talk about the do the opposite. I think a lot of this comes down to humility, and humility can come from being in nature. You know, I had a I had an experience where I nearly drowned in a river. I was jumping off these rocks in a in a river in in Colorado, and uh, 
And I just didn't realize how powerful, this was in the summer and the river was flowing fast. I just didn't realize how powerful it was until I landed in and I was like, oh shit. <laughs> and I just got swept down river and I was taken into another huge rock and just sucked down oh, and geez. pinned against the bottom of the rock at the oh. bottom of the river. And in that moment, I, I thought I was going to die. I was so awed by right. how powerful this little river was, yeah, you know? And so maybe all of these people who are trying to set this policy, these agendas for us. Throw them in a river. Let's throw them in a river <laughs> and see what they think. I love it. <laughs> Stay tuned for our George Costanza Memorial Do the Opposite segment, where we discuss things we can do to get the hell out of crazy town. Now you don't have to just listen to the three of us blather on anymore. We've actually invited someone intelligent on the program to provide inspiration. Hey, do you guys ever have trouble finding podcasts that you like? I just listen to ours. Yeah, no, I, what, what other podcasts are there? <laughs> well, that, that's actually what I wanted to talk about oh. is another podcast that's uh, it's sort of cut from the same cloth as Crazy oh. Town. Well, I should so, I should check it out. Yeah. Soiled, stinky, that kind <laughs> yeah, of Yeah, well, thing. I don't think they talk about poop as Bur- much as us. Burlap, is that the cloth? They they talk about environmental topics, and they got a sense of humor. Oh. It's called Sustainababble. Clever. And Yeah, it is clever. Oh, yeah, and, I've actually listened to it. And it's there's, pretty good. Yeah, there's two guys, Dave and Ollie, and they uh, work for nonprofits in the UK, and kind of as a labor of love, they record and, and produce Sustainababble. Now- the other thing is they have British accents. They're kind of like us, so, but they sound smarter. Yeah, they're smarter than us. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Low bar uh, if, if all you got to do is be smarter than us. But uh, but please, yeah, go check out Sustainababble. Every decision I've ever made in my entire life has been wrong. <laughs> my life is the complete opposite of everything I want it to be. If every instinct you have is wrong then the opposite would have to be right. So we've been talking about how our culture, our language, our uh, desire to price everything, commodify everything, how that ends up making us over-exploit nature and not have a very healthy relationship with it. So what the hell can we do that's the opposite? I mean, this is going to sound really overly simplistic and kind of stupid, but pretty important. We're used to that with you, though. (laughs) Get out of nature. Actually go out and get out of nature. Now, everyone's situation is different. For some people, it's literally going out the door, the back door, front door, whatever. For other people, it's a a serious, serious effort. So, you know, circumstances will dictate how often you can do that. But I would say for everyone listening, challenge yourself to go out and really immerse yourself in nature. Go bathe in the forest. Yes. And, you know, the thing is, is that like you're saying, not everyone has as easy access. So if you want to step up and make it easier for others to have access, maybe think about supporting your local public parks or local land trusts, which which do a good job of trying to locate access to nature to as many people as they can. So that's a that's there's always the ability to get involved, whether it's with a nonprofit or with a yeah. public organization. So that's really good. And if you have the means to do so, support programs that help kids get out in nature, particularly kids that are under-resourced, don't have the, the access to nature themselves, you know, urban kids. Yeah. 
I've had some friends do that, like out of college, you know. Yeah, yeah I, you have one sitting right here. When huh. I finished grad school, I was a teacher at an Upward Bound program, which mm-hmm. is taking students who are the first in their family to go to college or, or who meet a kind of an income, low income level requirement. All these kids came to uh, a university campus that was near the Great Smoky Mountains, and we went out and did field ecology research and taught them stuff. And you know, some of them, this is the first time they were getting out into into the woods like that. And like a lot of like sixth grade or eighth grade programs from schools, you know, they they yeah. have a week where they take the kids the, the class somewhere. So is that happening in your community? If so, can you make sure it's doing a good job? It's well supported. If not, can you develop something like that? So that's another way to do that is, you know, get it through the schools even. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think those are cool. I think a little bit harder challenge and one that we were, I think, starting to allude to is that we've got to get out of this colonizer mindset and uh, this exploitative relationship with nature and try to, in some ways, think more indigenously. And I, I don't want to pretend like like I'm some... Uh, someone who's knowledgeable in this realm. What have I done? I've read some some books, and uh, we've all, you know, the three of us <laughs> have sit here and make fun of how colonized my brain is by. by all You're colonized of, by the 1980s. Yeah, yeah. So much crap that uh, some TV screen told me to to do and be. But lately, I've been kind of fascinated by some of the writings I've seen on what it means to decolonize and how to think more indigenously. And I I wanted to maybe finish things up here with a quote uh, out of a book called Sacred Instructions. And it's a book by one of the friends of the Post Carbon Institute, Sherry Mitchell. You've actually interviewed her in the past this year. She's one of my favorite people. Yeah. So before I read this, I got to ask for pardons for butchering the pronunciation of some of the words that she uses from her language. And it's a little longer than the typical quote, but I think it's really worth thinking about some of the things that that she has to say. And maybe we should end it on this note. Let's do it. All right. So here's what Sherry Mitchell says at the beginning of chapter 16 in Sacred Instructions. Skejinawe Bumusawakan is the way of life that is held by my people, the Penawapskek, and the other tribes within the Wabanaki Confederacy. This way of life is about living close to the earth, close to our kin, and remaining ever mindful of our responsibilities to the sacred agreements that we have with every living being. It is about the sustainability of the earth, our relationships, and our spiritual connections. Xie means harmony with the natural world. It is not enough to know that we are part of one living system. We must also take active steps to live in harmony with the rest of creation. This means that we cannot adopt attitudes or belief that place us above the natural world. We cannot see ourselves as having dominion over the land, the water, or the animals. We can't even see ourselves as being stewards of the earth. We are only keepers of a way of life that is in harmony with the earth. Every day... We must act in ways that acknowledge that we are part of one living system, a unified whole. Kathleen Dean Moore is a writer, philosopher, and environmental thought leader. She is a professor emerita at Oregon State University and co-founded the Spring Creek Project for Ideas, Nature, and the Written Word. 
She's written and edited a bunch of wonderful books. Uh, her most recent is Earth's Wild Music, Celebrating and Defending the Songs of the Natural World. And I'm happy to call her a friend. Kathleen, welcome to Crazy Town. Thank you, my friend. <laughs> yeah, it's great to have you here. Jason, Asher, and I have just been discussing how humanity seems hell-bent on distancing itself from nature and how that distance enables us to undermine ecosystems. And of course, when we do that, we undermine ourselves. Uh, but it doesn't have to be that way. You've written beautifully about how people can have deeply fulfilling relationships with nature. Can you describe your views on humanity's relationship with nature? I can try. You know, the person I am led by and inspired by is the uh, a tribal elder whose name is Jack Forbes. And he points out how odd the notion is that we might in any way be separated from nature. <laughs> he says, uh, you could cut off my hands. You could cut off my ears. You could cut off both of my legs and I would still live. But if you cut off the air, I would die. If you cut off the water, I would die. So why do we think that our ears and our hands and our legs are more a part of us than the natural world. So we feel ourselves better than the rest of creation. We feel ourselves separate from it. We feel ourselves immune from its laws. And that's very convenient. Obviously, Al Gore talks about inconvenient truths, but we should talk a lot about our convenient lies, the lies we tell ourselves by our, uh, about how separate we are from the earth. So if we want to destroy forests wholesale, if we want to grind the hindquarters of animals into patties and eat them, if we want to wring the last oil and gas from the earth, it's very convenient to think of ourselves as separate from the earth and immune from any kind of consequences. Or to think that if we do have consequences, we can foist them off on poor people in our country or in the Southern Hemisphere or on future generations, worst of all. So we need to do what you quoted that beautiful Sherry Mitchell as saying, is that we need to find ourselves as keepers of a way of life that's in harmony with the earth. But we should understand how absolutely radical that idea is and how revolutionary it is, how much it would undermine, undermine, completely cut the stilts out of the extractive economy. Yeah. Wow. It's a, uh, so many thoughts are, are going through my head right now. Probably the, the most important is this idea that we've got to end our, our supremacy viewpoint, this story that we're above everything. I, I've been feeling that more and more as I, as I speak to, to people like you and, and, and Sherry and others. A, a big part of that is what stories we teach our children. And Again, the three of us, Jason, Asher, and I talked about how children face uh, what's called the, sh the shifting baseline, and they're facing this in two ways. One is that children experience our depleted natural world, the, the one we've already exploited in the ways you were talking about, and they think that's the way things are supposed to be. And then at the same time, they're experiencing all of this technology. They're, they're so embedded in it and in this materialist economy that they think that's how things are supposed to be. 
So if we're going to uh, restructure the economy, rebalance, get a, a much more holistic way of living, how do you see us doing that, resetting the baseline with children? Yeah, that's a really, really tough one. I mean, have have you ever seen a landscape that hasn't been degraded ever? Have you ever? <laughs> Not once. I mean, no. I, you know, you, you think you have, and then you go back and hear from older people or see older photos, and then you understand how what you thought was abundance isn't even close. That's right. Yeah. And the situation we find ourselves in that's different from people who came before and people who come after is the rapidity of a loss. So that, you know, in the 50 years that I've been writing about the natural world, the world has lost 60% of individual plants and animals. They've been wiped off the face of the earth in the time I've been writing about them. And, and the population of North American birds is down by a third. Half of the grassland birds are lost. Half of the butterflies are lost. And the difference is that we remember. We have lived through this. It has happened so quickly. We have done it so quickly that we can remember what used to be. And of course, that's not the case from, for the children. And of course, they have this sliding baseline of ecosystem thriving, and that's really worrisome. They can walk into a tree farm and think it's a forest. I've seen children play on the most extraordinary stumps and never raise their eyes to see the missing tree. I think that what we have then is the sliding baseline of ecosystem thriving and then the sliding baseline of our expectations of ourselves as caretakers. And then we have a sliding baseline of imagination. Can we even imagine a thriving, life-drenched world? And then that's the end of our sliding baseline of hope. So I think about this in regard to my own grandchildren. I think about this, what what can we do, as your question asked. And I, I wonder if maybe the only thing we can do for the children is to help them devote their lives to the restoration of a healthy ecocultural landscape. As they say, build it back better. Maybe if a child plants a tree, that child can imagine a forest. And maybe if we help the child plant a huckleberry bush, maybe that child can imagine a hummingbird. So giving the children opportunities to be part of recreating a whole, I think is probably our best chance. I really appreciate that and agree completely. I, I've often thought sometimes it feels futile going out and you know fighting this huge force that's overly exploiting the planet and you know this mass of humanity and the economy and you know what what can you do? But those kinds of actions, planting a tree, you know, uh, getting out in the even if it's just the backyard and seeing what happens. Yeah, I think that's beautiful. When you feel hopeless about the possibility of change as against this huge flow, you should go to this little town in Oregon that's called Lancaster. Maybe you have been to Lancaster. Just, I haven't. It's just this little town um, in the middle of, of wheat fields. And um, it used to be a river town. It was the center of... Um, the agricultural area and the head of steamboat shipping, and they used to ship out all these products down to Portland on the steamboats. That town is now a mile and a half or two miles or maybe even three miles away from the river, and it happened overnight, and it happened because of a flood. So it was the force of the river 
that actually changed its course. And what happened was that there was a flood that was ripping out the cottonwoods. And the force of the river was carrying those cottonwoods down until they lodged against the shore or something. And more and more of them piled up. And of course, as, as you start blocking a river, you slow its flow and it stops dropping its load. And so the river itself, that force of the river, blocked the river and it leapt in one movement two and a half miles away. <laughs> so I've been thinking about that. Uh, I, I don't want to go too far off subject, but all we need to do is start to slow that river. We don't have to stop it. We just have to jam it up all over the place. And the river will do the work of stopping itself. I leave it to you, of course, to find a beautiful nature metaphor to describe <laughs> what what we need to do as humans. Yeah, well, one, one little obstruction to profits or one little deflection in complacency, you know, one blockage to business as usual. All of us need to find our stone or our tree and chuck it in. And yeah. the force of the river will turn it in a different direction. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, uh, one of your books is titled River Walking, but here you're talking about river leaping. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Speaking of books, too, I want to turn to your most recent one, which is Earth's Wild Music. And that's about wild songs and the uh, majestic creatures who sing them. Your writing in it can strike two very different chords. You've got a celebratory chord and you've got a, a sorrowful chord. But overall, the book's a call to defend nature and the music of the natural world. And that theme is right in line with work I've seen you doing to find the connection between nature and the art that we humans produce. Can you talk about art as a gateway to nature conservation and deepening our relationship with nature? I'm happy to. This writing of this book, Earth's Wild Music, has been a great, great joy for me. At the same time, you know, it has brought me into contact with facts that are just impossible to hold. These days, um, you know, Mary Oliver, the poet Mary Oliver, a writer, wrote, My work is loving the world which is mostly standing still and learning to be astonished, which is mostly rejoicing, which is gratitude. But not anymore. Celebration isn't enough. And the person who's going to write about the natural world has to find a way to open people's hearts without breaking them. Maybe crack them a bit to let the light in, as Leonard Cohen says. So how do you do that? Um, I think you do it with art, with literature, with music, with visual art. And, and here's my metaphor. This is not a river metaphor, Rob. This, is a, <laughs> this takes you back to a cave. And here you have Medusa. Remember that Greek goddess whose hair was so awful and whose appearance and countenance was so fearsome that when people looked at her, they would turn to stone. They were paralyzed. They were unable to act. And I think that's the situation we find ourselves in right now. If people look directly at the climate crisis, at the extinction crisis, at ecosystem collapse, they are paralyzed. So many things coming at them. So many snakes that they're turned to stone. But what happened with Medusa is that here came the great Theseus with his magic sword and his shield. And he held his reflective shield up to Medusa so that he could look into his shield and see a reflection of her horror. And then using that image, he reached out with his magic sword and cut off her head. 
That's the work of art, is to provide a reflection of the horror so that people are able to look on it without being turned to stone, so that they are released from their horror and they're able to see in a different way. They're able to reflect on what we have, and in that they would be then empowered and open to change. So I look everywhere I can for these, um, these reflective shields. And right now I'm working with music because I think music is a way to take an emotion straight into or a information straight into the heart. So, for example, we've been creating these tiny concerts and they're so much fun. Each one of them is four minutes long. Each of them has a wonderful poet or writer reading a selection from Earth's Wild Music about a particular animal and accompanied by a live performance from a musician. <laughs> So, for example, Robin Kimmerer, the beautiful author of um, Braiding Sweetgrass, reads a piece on the common myrrh and is accompanied by two youth string, a, a cellist and a, and a violinist. And so we've got these up on YouTube. You can Google Spring Creek Project and you'll find them all there, 20 of them. Um, in each case, your mind, your heart will be opened to the glory of this animal and you will come away also understanding how horribly imperiled they are so there's just an example of what we're trying to do with music yeah wow that is that is inspiring and i uh from my past working in conservation biology i, I have to say it's a, a lot more inspiring than just running through a list of the uh you know the imminent extinctions or the you know all of the problems with the habitat that, that's you know tends to be what happens when you put a bunch of conservation biologists in a room but not often that you key in on the beauty, the, the music of it all. And so I, yeah, I really appreciate that. Yeah, we live on a singing planet. Yeah. <laughs> we can't let the music die. Yeah. Well, you know, I don't want to get overly personal, but I was wondering if you could share with our listeners something that you've done, and obviously you've, you've done a lot and thought a lot about this, but I was wondering if you could maybe come up with a story or something that you've done at some point in your life that deepened your connection to nature and or maybe just made you realize something about your place in all of this. Yeah, right. Um, I could talk about the Galapagos Islands underwater. I could talk about Glacier Bay, but Let's not. Let's talk about my backyard, okay? Because I live on College Hill in a town of 65,000 people. My house is crammed onto a lot that's 50 feet by 100 feet. So my backyard is probably, it's just a dumb little backyard, about 30 feet by 20 feet. And for the longest time, it was lawn. It was soccer nets. It was the swing. It was sprinkler heads. It was fringe of petunias. But when the children went off to college, we tore it all out, everything, and we started planting native plants. It was so much fun. Milkweed, wild azalea, bleeding hearts, salol, huckleberries, hemlocks, vine maples, all crammed into this. And by now, maybe five, six years later, we have a real forest. It's tiny. It's a native forest. And it's a blizzard of birds. <laughs> You know, it, it, it's, it's proof of the old adage that if you build it, they will come. There are birds out there. There are animals. There are butterflies. There are other kind of insects that are looking for a remnant, even if it's a recreated remnant of the world that they evolved in. They can't live in lawns, but they can live in these little patches. So 
It's made us happy. We can sit in that little forest, that tiny forest, and feel that we're in a spray of confetti of birds, you know, like a celebration after the Super Bowl. Uh, it is so full of life. And I was reading that there's been this big mega study of what makes people happy. And they say, number one, there's three things. Number one is sleep. I wouldn't have thought of that, but that's what it is. Number one is adequate sleep. Number two is gratitude. And number three is doing something for others. So it shouldn't make me surprised that this little tiny forest is making us happy because it involves giving back, reciprocity, trying to recreate something that is that has been a gift to you. And it involves um, trying in a really, in a tangible way to make something whole that had been torn apart. There should be a sanctuary movement everywhere. People are talking now about making 30% of the planet into animal habitat and remaking it. I know E.O. Wilson is talking about half Earth, 50% of the Earth. We can do that. That's where we have to go. We have to stop the harm. We have to stop the killing. And we have to build back the places of wildness and life fulfillment. Thanks so much, Kathleen. Kathleen Dean Moore is the author of Earth's Wild Music. I really enjoyed talking with you, and I uh, want to say thanks for joining me here in Crazy Town. Uh, you, you are doing good work, Rob. Thanks for the opportunity to chat. Thanks for listening to this episode of Crazy Town. Yeah, if by some miracle you actually got something out of it, please take a minute and give us a positive rating or leave a review at your preferred podcast app. And thanks to all our listeners, supporters, and volunteers. And special thanks to our producer, Melody Travers. You know, one of my side gigs is to try to find sponsors for, for the podcast. Yeah. And uh, I had a hard time because every time I, I let people know that the show was about not putting a price on nature, nobody wanted to sponsor it. I know. You passed the, you passed the buck on to me, and I, I, I was talking to all kinds of people. Like, what, you're like decommodification? Uh, are you a communist or what's you, going on? I mean, I just got a lot of blowback from all potential sponsors. You couldn't get Exxon or DuPont or somebody like that to sponsor? Nobody wanted to touch this. I'm like, you can we can greenwash it. I mean, we can do our best. Um, <laughs> yeah. But no, it was... Well, Maybe like uh, Sesame Street, this episode is brought to you by the letter N and the uh, number two. Okay, what is that? What are you getting at? <laughs> well, maybe we just can't find a sponsor, so uh, this can just be brought to you by nature. Sounds good. That sounds good. Crazy town. Da 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 da